Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Many people that have supported me over this uh, writing journey, and um, it was especially important to me to do this with Right Girl because I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Right Girl. Um, my first book I wrote while um, I was a mentor at um, with Right Girl and uh, became a curriculum director there when I lived in LA before, and then we moved to Brooklyn, and now we've just moved back. But um, way back then, I was plugging away on my first book, Trafficked, and I was going to all these writing workshops and, um, you know, uh, working with my beautiful mentee, Romelin, who um, inspired me every day that um, I worked with her, and, and she... Um, it was just, it's an incredible organization. I feel like the mentors uh, get so much from the mentees and hopefully we give a lot to them too. But, um, and as you can see from the, the mentees who came before me, they're just uh, incredible. You can't believe it. They, the writing they do is just like mind-blowingly good. And, uh, you know, the motto is never underestimate the power of a girl and her pen. And I think that organizations like Right Girl are, are what we need in today's world. So that was very important to me and so great to, to and so definitely, oh, if you have a teen, the neat thing is, especially if you have a teen who's fired up about writing, there's all kinds of experiments throughout, but also they get to see actual teen writing that uh, really speaks to their experience. So um, this is not a love letter, it's my second book. Um, and it's based on uh, a very difficult time in my life in which one of my closest friends went missing. And he went missing about two weeks before we graduated from high school. And right away we didn't know if he'd um, been the victim of a hate crime or what. He just went for a run. He showed up by a party where I was at and I was in the backyard and someone said, hey, um, you know, Kim, your friend, you know, he's out front, you got to go say hi. So I went into the front and, and my friend Al was there and he's like, hey, how you doing? I just wanted to say hi. I'm in the middle of a run. And uh, I'm like, why don't you just stay? I think you actually really want to stay. You don't want to do this run. And he's like, no, no, no. I really want to do the run. So he said, uh, you know, I'm going to go down to the river and then I'm going to go home and then I'll come back. So I was like, okay, fine. And then um, he never made it home. So um, we searched for him for days in the woods. And um, during that time, um, I started talking to him. And, and what I found is that that's not so unusual when someone drops out of your life suddenly uh, through uh, they go missing, they, uh, it's a sudden breakup and you don't see them again, um, or a death, all of those things, people start in their mind imagining the person and, and your mind just can't cope with the sudden loss of, of someone without any kind of expectation that they would be leaving soon. So um, I wrote this book in, with that vein of where she's, she's telling him an account of what's going on, what they're doing to find him, but she sends him messages 
And so um, I'm going to read you the first couple, um, first couple pages, and then um, I'll hear your any questions you guys have. This is not a love letter, so don't get all excited for nothing. Maybe I should write you one to go with all the letters you've written me and fold it into perfect little airplanes. But I never wrote you one before, and it would be seriously bad luck to start now. Chris, where are you? How did you not come home last night? I don't care where you went or what you're doing. I just want to know if you're okay. We all do. I mean, who does this? I'm starting to feel kind of weird. Desperate, if you want to know the truth. It's like when I get a mosquito bite. You're always telling me to leave it alone, but I can't stop itching till it bleeds. Right now, you're my mosquito bite. Isn't that romantic? I thought I'd write and let you know what we're doing to find you. Maybe it'll help me figure out where you are. So until you turn up, this is an account. I know, that's the unsexiest word ever. But if you want a sexy love letter, you're going to have to come back home and get it. 7.01 a.m. Saturday, my house. I'll start this account with first thing this morning. I wake up to someone banging on my back door. I open my eyes. The pale light of early morning is drifting through my small basement window. Of course, I think it's you at the door, and I gotta admit, I'm kind of pissed. I don't know why you'd knock when you have a key, but it can't be anyone else. I tug on my jean shorts and put on a bra under the tangerine t-shirt you bought me to match my hair. I wore it to bed. Yes, I admit, I was missing you just a little bit. More knocking. For God's sake, I'm coming. I open my bedroom door, step into the hall, and bump into a stack of magazines which tips over, blocking the hallway. I climb over them. Seriously, if the big west coast earthquake ever happens, I'll be buried alive under a pile of us and people magazines. Jessie? My mom is making her way down the stairs in her old pink bathrobe, gripping the railing like her knees hurt. What's going on? She sounds groggy, probably because of the sleeping pills. She looks worse than normal. Greasy hair, dark circles under her eyes, her tired, sagging face. I'm worried about her at that moment, not you. <laughs> it's okay, Mom, I say. Go back to sleep. I got it. Okay, she mumbles and heads back up the stairs. I navigate around the piles of laundry and random towers of my mom's stuff. Finally arrive at the back door, which I swing open. Nobody's there. I stand with the door wide open. Really? Did you really wake up and leave? I dig out the corners of my eyes for what you call sleep surprises and think about how we both get the same sick pleasure from morning crusties. You told me you love the feeling when you dig them out and they scrape against the corner of your eye and right away I realized that's what I like too. This break is really stupid. In so many ways we're perfect for each other. Anyway, it's a week before graduation and we should be together. I decide to stop being so stubborn and go make up. Give you a big old wet kiss. And forget about needing some perspective. I slide into my flip-flops, step into the yard, and walk to the side gate. There's a strong pulp mill smell in the air. Like a stew of farts, rotten eggs, used athletic socks, and yes, plus a little sugar. The gate squeals as I throw it open. I expect to see you walking up the incline along our house to the front lawn, but nobody's there. I listen for your truck. 
All I hear are the neighbor's dogs going crazy, barking inside her house. Are you in your truck already? Are you going to leave again? I take off, running up the path, my flip-flops slapping against the gravel. I catapult myself around the corner of the house, ready to throw myself at you, only you're not there. Instead, I see Josh pushing his bike past the giant tire in the middle of our lawn. The back of his white t-shirt is soaked with sweat. What's he doing at my house at this time in the morning? Were you running with him? Did you fall? Are you hurt? Josh? He turns. Sweat is dripping down his face. His blue eyes are rimmed with red like he's been crying. He pulls off his helmet. His curly blonde hair is so drenched it falls down like an air mattress without air. He runs a hand through it and swallows. You hear from Chris yet? I say something like, why or what? He's missing, he says, as if he's reminding me, like that's something I forget. Missing? The word missing echoes inside me, reverberates against the internal walls of my body like an empty chamber. A guy like you doesn't go missing. You're responsible, smart, athletic, sexy, funny, sensitive, kind. You are hundreds of words, but you are not missing. Right, I'll stop there. So, I'd like to take questions from you guys. Anything that you are wondering about the book? The... <laughs> Some people really have asked that, like in real life. <laughs> How did you, like, did you have the whole idea of the book before you started writing? Um, I did, but then it changed. Um, I had an idea of, of um, what the questions were that I wanted to explore and who I wanted to um, um, introduce into the story and, and what kind of um, issues I needed to talk about. Like, uh, um, I wanted to talk about small town violence and racism, and so I wanted to have that be um, a, a theme that wove its way through. And I wanted to talk about how the natural world intermixes um, with the life in, in those kind of places. And, um, and so we have the river um, going through um, the book in, in several scenes. Um, and I knew that um, I wanted to talk about a, a few um, incidences in my childhood that were really um, hard and put those in the narrative. I like to use a lot of my own experiences, but then change them. So, um, uh, you know, fictionalize them to some extent. And, and, and I changed what happened in the ending um, of the book. The fictional, um, the fictional story is slightly different. Yeah. Do you find yourself reacting to current events and making changes in the book as things are going on in the um, well, you know, one thing that um, I definitely wanted to make sure that I got right was my um, how I dealt with white privilege and bias. I wanted to make sure that um, that was very clear. And so I had several sensitivity readers um, read the book and, and I listened to their feedback. And I think that's a real key thing that a lot of people get sensitivity readers and it's not convenient whatever they say and so they're like oh do I really need to worry about that and for me I really want this book to be the kind of book that every kid can read and and feel um, 
embraced by, I guess. So um, we searched for him for um, the um, entire, well, I mean, we searched for him for several days in the woods, um, and then the land search was called off because we didn't find anything. And I remember when I, I stood, um, when the first day of the search started, first of all, uh, let's dial back a little bit. When he first went missing, the, I, I was some tanning in the morning after that party, and um, a couple of our guy friends came up and they're like, hey, have you seen Al? And I was like, what? And, and it was just, he's such a dependable guy that it just didn't seem possible that he wouldn't have come home. That some, I feel that right away I knew something was wrong. And, um, but it took two days for the cops to start looking. 48 hours. Wow. So that's a really long time for anybody. I mean, imagine, you know, there are all these different things that could have happened. And, and I think for all of our, uh, all of us, we were like, well, you know, he could have fallen and broken his leg. Like, we need to get the search happening right away. And they were like, ah, he probably ran away and, or took off. And we were like, no, no, he would never be that. So that was just right from the beginning. Racial bias was a, a real, um, element, I think, because he was one of the only African-American um, teens, um, m people, really, in our town. I mean, because uh, it was northern British Columbia. Um, now, I set the book in um, the Northwest because I felt like the demographics were similar, and um, having spent quite a bit of time in the Northwest, I felt like the issues of bias and white privilege and um, were very much very similar. So, um, so we did a land search, and on the finally they were like, okay, I guess we'll look after a couple days, and um, it was pouring rain, and I was a pretty poor kid. I didn't have any money, and I had one pair of shoes, and so um, I remember that because uh, throughout the following days, I still had to wear these soaking wet shoes, and anyone who has muddy soaked shoes, like I'll never forget the feeling of like of that but not, and not that that mattered to me but that that's just part of the sensory experience that I tried to remember when I wrote the book I would have searched for him for weeks with my wet muddy shoes um, but um, what they did as we started the search they had um, we had like about 200 people show up it was a pretty big crowd for a search and the guy at the front, he was, was something about how he acted seemed a little cavalier to me. He had these um, headphones that my friend had been wearing, and he, um, like, he had a Walkman, and so they're the bigger kind of headphones. And he kind of swung them and said, "Okay, we're looking for something like this," and like it was, a, you might want a piece of the um, the wire, or maybe it's a piece of the headphone. And he just kind of swung them in that moment. Um, stuck in my mind like why are you swinging those headphones and and then he continued on he said or we're looking for a piece of clothing um, maybe some blood on a, on a bush and I was like you know as he's going on and then he says you know but we're not looking for a body and um, that moment for me was very um, shocking 
because I, I remember I even gasped a little because I was like, I am looking for his alive body. Yes, I am. I am looking for an alive body. I'm looking for my friend who I believe is still alive. And, um, and of course, when someone says we're not looking for a body, then the entire search, I'm looking for his body. And so uh, thinking, oh my gosh, is he dead? And, and so I started talking to him and sending him messages. Hey, you think you could, um, you know, can you hear me? Do you hear the intensity me, uh, intensity of my desire to find you? Could you, are you somewhere? And, and maybe we could just have like a little brain connection going here. And um, you would tell me where you are. And, um, and I could, it was just silence. I, I didn't hear anything during that whole search, um, but I kept sending out requests for a little bit of feedback and, and so that maybe I would look somewhere and I would find the evidence and then we would find him and he would be safe. But that's not what happened. Um, so after a, a few days, they called off the land search and then they did a search of the river and they didn't find him there either. And so then I was like, oh, he's maybe there someone's holding him somewhere or maybe he's okay like we've looked everywhere his body hasn't been found he's probably okay or maybe is okay so um we there was a, there was nothing else to they they said well you know it's possible if he had fallen in the river or if he was pushed or if he jumped his body could be out to sea so that was still a, a possibility and so throughout that whole um, summer, I started to, um, I ran a lot almost every day and I would picture him running beside me because we used to run together. Uh, we were on the cross country team together and he was faster than me, but he was the kind of guy who would always slow down and, you know, anybody who, you know, he just was there to cheer you on. And so I pictured him being there and, and I would picture him talking to me and joking with me. And so, even though I knew he wasn't, I, I never thought, oh, his ghost has come. I just thought, oh, I'm just imagining him because I, you know, had an imagination and I imagined things all the time. So it wasn't strange to imagine him. And then um, September started and I decided to take the year off of school. And so um, about three weeks into September, his um, body was found. Two brothers found him. And so that's how it happened in the real story. And we never knew, was he pushed? Did he jump? And um, so um, that was something that um, I wanted to look at all possible options. And um, so that's what made me decide to write the book. Yeah. That doesn't totally give away the ending. <laughs> How do you develop a new character that you're writing from? Oh, um, the way I, I develop a new character, um, actually I'm just developing a new character for my next book now, so I just start to think of, of something um, unique about the character. And, and one thing, this new character, um, in, in, in the book for, for this, actually was different because I was basing a lot of the characters on real people. So it's sort of a mesh of me and real people. I'm hoping they don't know who they are. <laughs> With my first book, Traffic, though, I, um, I actually kept the names of the people. <laughs> they were students or people I met um, in Moldova when I was researching my um, book because it's about a modern day slave in America who's kept in, in the home of a family. And so the members of that family were um, 
um, some of my students that I'd met that one of them I suspected might have a modern day slave. She had indicated several things to me, but I never found out for sure, but she's definitely um, an iffy kind of person. I, I you know, there, it, it was very hard to figure it out, but I based that character on her, and I told my editor at the time, I said, you know, it's the same name as the person I'm basing it on. Do you think that we should change it? And she's like, no, nah, it doesn't matter. They'll never know. So, <laughs> so I didn't keep like all, like it, the, the female name, she was married to a different male student that I had at a different time. So anyway, that's how I made those characters. But for This Is Not a Love Letter, um, it's a little bit more of a mesh of me and um, different people I've known. And then um, the one I'm creating now, I had an idea of, of a girl that does impressions, and she she's been bullied very badly, and she in her she has to homeschool because she's and she starts doing impressions, and and she becomes so good at doing impressions that then when she goes back to school, she creates she does an impression, so she's not actually being her true self, and so. Um, I thought that would be a really interesting, kind of quirky, fun character, because I wanted to do someone, <laughs> I just needed a little bit more lightness in my next book. Um, so this kid, I needed to, because I'm pretty, like I laugh lots and, and uh, uh, you know, I love humor. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to have that in the next book that I wrote, even though it's probably going to be about bullying. I'll have, um, I'll have a, a little bit of lightness in it too. Do you find it easier to write in Brooklyn or Los Angeles? Oh, Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> in a really big way. <laughs> okay. um, because I worked out of the Brooklyn Writers Space, and that was an amazing place because, you know, first of all, Brooklyn is filled with writers and they're all novelists, right? I mean, some there's some screenplay writers here, but here, when I'm like, yeah, I read a book, people will say, oh, you should make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> book, blah. Yeah. So, so but in, in uh, Brooklyn, there are a lot of writers. I mean, one thing is, though, there, if you write books also, it's like, oh, yeah, my friend writes a book, too, and the, the, you don't like, but the great thing is that when you work at the Brooklyn Writers, space like they have the, basically they have one area where it's all carols and then they have like an area that's um, coffee kind of a hangout area so you'd go in there and you'd and the intensity of the creative focus in there was amazing and then you come out and have some tea but then go back in this like place that was sort of buzzing with with that energy but also I just feel like walking down the street because you're always with humanity you know, you go in the subway, you, you, like, you are always looking in the eyes of people and you're seeing their pain. You see people crying on the street. You see people laughing. You see little arguments. You hear conversations constantly. And uh, it just, it has a certain fire, um, a creative fire that is hard to match here because, you know, you're walking on streets where there aren't barely any people or um, you're in your car more. Um, how, however, I do like the sunshine. <laughs> so, I mean, and, you know, so every place, if, and if you're craving people, you can go to people places here. It's just in Brooklyn, you can't get away from the people. They're always, you're, it's always a part of you, you know. Yeah. 
up with particular metaphors for certain spots in your, in your book. Just think about the region that you began with, instead of like, the air mattress being filled up. Mm -hmm. Is it oversimplifying maybe, but is it just sort of like, oh, that popped in my head? Yeah. I never ever force metaphors. It just, uh, it comes through the, the voice of the character. Though I have to say, when I am writing a character, one of the biggest things that I do that um, I find super helpful is I get into the body of the character and I think of how they walk, I think of how, like, are they wearing tight boots? Like, the, I really try to feel their physical body and how they move and um, all of that and I find the movement of a character um, creates the voice um, so then sometimes things will come out and I'll be like whoa that's fascinating I never could have planned that but that character said that yeah <laughs> Right. Um, so for me, I think having been um, so, Melanie and I were in our master's program, which actually we did just graduate, so we're finished it now. Yay! Um, and um, and I did my um, uh, critical thesis. You have to do a critical thesis and a creative thesis, and I did my critical thesis on body language in fiction. And um, because I, you know, we're always taught, you know, don't do clenched fists, don't do that. But I wanted to look at, well, how do we um, create um, the dynamics of power um, in our writing through body language? So for example, it, how do we move beyond cliche but still trigger the reader to that feeling? Um, so for example, things like, um, uh, very innate things like you stand in a doorway. It, just imagine if, if, if you read that in fiction, someone's standing in a doorway. So for you, as the reader, you'll get triggered because our limbic systems are automatically triggered by someone blocking an exit. So we get nervous for that main character. So there are things like that, or like people will, like you're feeling uncomfortable, so they slide their leg, uh, like, uh, someone stops and they're still talking, but the person who's in the passenger side opens the door and slides their leg out. And then you know they're kind of uncomfortable. They're ready to flee, right? But we don't say that. We can just do that. That. So I feel like it's shorthand for triggering the reader. And also I'm just super interested because I feel like it's an unspoken language that's really important to know what it means. And learning all about body language um, for this, for my um, master's, uh, it also just helped me have so much more empathy for people, you know, because we all get nervous and we all do these little things. Like, uh, one thing that I learned, did you know that we all have a pacifying response? So all day long, we're pacifying ourselves in different ways, and we generally have the same kind of thing that we always do. So some people, like, rub their legs, um, that will be a pacifying response when you um, repeated rubbing arm. Some people air out their shirt. Some people like rub their chin. I do the chin thing like I have a beard. <laughs> um, some people like pick. Uh, Obama often um, puts his his finger in his eye like 
he, he does that. So it was really interesting looking at various people and what are their standards sort of pacifying um, body language and and note and then seeing that uh, my kids now laugh because I'm like I can tell when you're lying you <laughs> cannot lie to me anymore and I'm I'm pretty good like it's 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 funny but it, because it, we we pacify more when we get nervous unless you know we don't care if we lie but most of us care it 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 doesn't feel good to lie so anyway that's why I just found it I've always found it fascinating and so then I had this opportunity and you know who's an incredible who's one of the very best writers period but he's so incredible at body language is Jason Reynolds has anybody read Jason Reynolds okay so he he read uh, he wrote All American Boys um, with Brendan Keeley um, one of the most incredible books I highly highly recommend it um, and then for younger kids, he wrote um, Ghost. Um, so, um, but All American Boys is like for every adult, every person. It's such an incredible um, book, and it's based around um, uh, a police beating of a kid and it, uh, an African American kid, and it jumps from that kid's perspective to um, the white, um, uh, a white kid who witnesses it and is has always looked up to this cop as a role model. And um, he's best friends with the the guy's brother. So, uh, and trying to unpack that you've done all these good things for me, but you did this awful, horrible thing. And so they go back and forth to that, and and how do we make those decisions around um, uh, situations uh, of this nature? So they anyway, I can't. I it's an incredible book. You guys should all all read it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um. First, I want to say, go back about the uh, physical uh, mm -hmm. things that create the character. And it reminds me of when I was studying acting in England. And the more, the more way to, to breathe in that character is to put the shoes on. Right. First. Yeah. Instead of the more American way mm -hmm. is to get through your, you know. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, so acting, um, actors often call that method acting, you know, where they, yeah, um, get into, but yeah, the clothes, you wouldn't, but the clothes that your character chooses are really important for how they move, and also their emotions in their body, because that changes everything, like, um, and, and so then through that comes voice, yeah. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> that does not happen. I don't meet with my editor almost ever. But so no, I nobody. I don't. Um, but but I'll finish a full draft. Okay. So you write your book, you send it to your editor, and then they give you a generalized idea of what you need to change, and then you rewrite the whole book, and then you send it back, and then they they get more and more specific until finally you go to copy editing. So um, with this, it's not a love letter. I probably wrote it about eight times before it was, um, um, before I got an agent with this book, because my, um, this is a good little story about not giving up. If any of you are um, writers or um, any kind of thing, actors, whatever. With my first book, which did quite well, I was like, oh, I'm gonna have no problems with the second book. And, um, and then um, my agent quit agenting 
and she passed me off to a different agent who hated everything I wrote, including this book. <laughs> and, yeah. and I was like, oh gosh, I guess I'm just a terrible writer. I guess I gotta go get my MFA to get, become a better writer, you know? And so and instead of realizing like, maybe it's just that agent. So anyway, I, when I got into my master's program, I was like, hmm, they were really enthusiastic about accepting me. Maybe it's not so bad. So I sent it out to three of the top literary agents um, who sold the most of that year, and um, they all wanted it. So I was like, what? So uh, what was so interesting is like, even doesn't matter even if you've had some success, it's easy to be like, oh no, I guess I'm just not good anymore. I was like, you know, and, and then it went, uh, she, I did one revision with her, and then she sent it out to editors, and it went to auction, which means three different houses wanted it. And we took a preempt offer for it because um, this particular editor sent me the nicest, <laughs> nicest uh, letter. So it just shows you, like, even like uh, her writing this beautiful letter to me, I was like, oh, I just want to work with her. So, um, so the the point is, like, I almost gave up. I, I didn't really give up. I kept writing the whole time, but I started to doubt myself. So it's really important to not. I now learn my lesson. I, I hope I won't. That won't happen again. Yeah. Any other questions? No. Okay. All right. So that's good. Uh, oh, wait. Before I say, so just. Um, uh, yeah, I encourage you guys to buy the Right Girl book, and also um, I'm going to give um, $10 from every book I sell of mine at this event to Right Girl. So, all right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.